This is the Education Gadfly Show. All right, can I ask you an existential question? <laughs> what? Does any of this matter? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Stephanie Rabel, the Associate Policy Researcher at RAND. Stephanie, welcome. Thanks, Mike. How are you? I'm good. I, I guess not really the associate policy researcher. There's probably and a lot of there are associate quite a few policy of us, researchers yes. at, at a place like Rand. Well, welcome to the show. Also joining us, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Great to have you here. Yep. Stephanie, uh, we've known Stephanie for a long time. Uh, you were a grad student back uh, at USC with the illustrious Morgan Polakoff. Correct. And I remember you you and Morgan came and you were part of our, our big competition we had in the early days of ESSA, where we had people come and pitch their ideas for how states should, uh, sh- should implement ESSA, especially with respect to accountability. Yeah, it was, I, a, it was actually a really interesting and enlightening day to sort yeah. of see the different perspectives and ideas that people had. And I think some of them are actually in play these days. There's some that are in play. You guys did very well. I, you know, you were up, you had some tough competition. Remember there were some kids from Kentucky? Yes. That That's was right. That, that was, was amazing. Cool. They were, they were <laughs> great. Amazing. And they were really good uh, at this and, and many other good ideas. And we're going to come back now and talk about what we're seeing in the real world. So let's do that on Ed Reform Update. So we are now in this phase of ESSA where we're starting to see states come out with their ratings for schools, at least for the 40 or so states that are going to do ratings. Uh, these report cards, uh, we, for example, in Ohio that, mm-hmm. that came out a few weeks ago, we've been pouring over them to try to make sense of them. And we're going to get to see this uh, throughout the country. What, what are you seeing, Stephanie, as you finally see this new approach to grading schools, to rating schools under ESSA? Uh, is this looking better than we had under No Child Left Behind? Or, or is it looking much different? What, what how should we think about it? Yes, and? <laughs> uh, so I would say it is looking different, right? When you look at a school's report card these days, you're seeing a lot more data. Okay. Right? You're not just seeing math test scores and English test scores and how many kids participated. You're getting information on attendance and discipline rates, on college and career readiness. You're getting more data on absences. That said, there's a lot more data, which means there's a lot more space for confusion. So if you take the Ohio example into play, Ohio gives a school an overall grade score of an A through F. Mm -hmm. And then they provide data on how the sort of individual components Mm -hmm. of the school accountability system got there. But they also get rated on an A through F. So they get an A for academic achievement. They get a B for academic uh, performance, which is sort of usually a growth measure. They get a C on culture and climate. And then the public sort of has to figure out how do all of those moving pieces come together to get that school's overall rating mm-hmm. of a B. So I think there's a lot more information, which is great, but there's also a lot more room for confusion. Yeah. You know, one of the big debates, of course, we've had for years now, but within ESSA was this question about growth versus proficiency. Uh, we've been excited that we we think we're seeing states move much more aggressively towards looking at growth uh, instead of proficiency. Excited because we think that's a fair way to uh, evaluate schools, uh, and it's a way that's more uh, neutral towards demographics. In other words, if you're a high poverty school, it is virtually impossible to get a high grade on a proficiency measure, but quite possible uh, to do that if it's a good growth measure. Uh, Are we seeing that as well? We are seeing that. I've seen looking at these, and I will say not all states are out with their performance cards yet, Um, but you are seeing a a mixture of both proficiency and growth. And we actually know that it's 
better when you look at both mm-hmm. pieces and not just proficiency or growth. It gives you a much better picture of what's happening at that school. So I actually like the fact that we're getting the combination of the two. I'm not yet uh, certain as to how much proficiency is being weighted mm-hmm. relative to growth or vice versa. So it'll be interesting to see if they're getting equal footing mm-hmm. in a school's performance measure, if growth is sort of becoming the bigger the bigger tool that schools are leaning on, or if we're still relying heavily on that proficiency measure, which we know is informative, but not great by any yeah. standard. And yet, whether it's proficiency or growth, I mean, most of the data still in most places, it's about test scores. Right. I mean, this was the supposed to, ESSA was supposed to open things up to look at things beyond test scores and states haven't come up with much. No. And what they have come up with oftentimes seems to be low hanging fruit, mm-hmm. right? Attendance measures, which... They already calculate. Yeah. There's a difference. Some states are using ac- um, average daily attendance. Some are using chronic absenteeism rates. Yeah. But we also know that those are highly correlated with poverty measures. Yeah. And so they're not necessarily a fair measure. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing the use of school climate surveys or staff surveys that have already sort of been in place, but mm-hmm. those aren't necessarily validated for use in high stakes accountability. Yeah. And so I think at the end of the day, we're still talking test scores. Yeah. yeah. What about post-secondary stuff? I mean, I just, uh, to me, I don't, I know it's challenging, right? I mean, if, if you're, uh, if you go to high school in Delaware, you could go to any one of 48 colleges, right? So it's obviously an, an, a challenge from a sort of data systems alignment, but I feel like we simply have to get there. And it's amazing to me that I haven't heard more talk about it, given the opportunity here. Yeah. So there is one thing you're seeing at the high school level is this sort of like college and career readiness. And so some of it is post-secondary enrollment, but I don't know how, right. right. It's a great laugh. How is that measured? Is it simply the proportion of kids from that state that, or from that school that went to a state school? Or are we tracking the kids that are going to Princeton and USC? I I don't know the answer to that. Those are a tiny percentage of the kids. They are a tiny percentage of kids. For for most schools, this is not a big problem because the kids go to school 15 miles from their, from their home. I mean, they're staying in state. Of course, it's funny that you picked Delaware. I mean, have you been to Delaware? Do you see how small Delaware is? It's pretty small. That's the whole point though, right? I mean, like it's, if you're Delaware, it's really actually a difficult challenge, right? What, because to, the kids may go out of state? Because tons of the kids go uh, out of state, right? Okay. Within, right, within a 30-mile radius, you're in uh, a number I, of other I, states. I, I get it, okay. I get it. You know, it's just, I, I, it's amazing to me, if I, you gave me a choice between trying to fix that problem and yeah. trying to come up with a socio-emotional indicator yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah. that I trusted, right? I would go with, let's just try to get yeah. uh, some nationally sort of yeah. useful. Well, I do think the, the national, the, the, the clearinghouse, the, yeah. the, I think ha- is able to do that crossing the state lines. What I'm worried about with the college and career readiness stuff is, again, looking in Ohio, looks highly correlated demographics, as yes. you'd expect. I mean, how do you think about this in terms of a growth or, you know, some kind of controlling for uh, poverty kind of thing. And so as a result, you know, when we look at our, uh, the the charter schools in our portfolio, for example, we've got a couple that have, uh, that are high schools or have high school grades and they look pretty terrible um, because I think, I'm you know, they're serving very poor kids. And so again, we're, it's like, we're back to square one again. We've made progress in looking at things beyond test scores, but then we're back to this box about saying, well, a lot of these things are really strongly correlated with demographics. So if you're trying to measure the impact effectiveness of a school, uh, how do you think about that? Right. I also think, thinking about the Ohio measure, if I'm not mistaken, some of their measures of college and career readiness are what proportion of kids took an AP exam or an IB exam, which now you're also talking incentive structures for the schools to offer these classes, even if they aren't actually the quality and content that most people know of as an AP history or an AP bio. Um, So what are we doing the students a service by offering them a class labeled 
AP Bio one. In fact, it's not actually AP Bio, but I agree. We've got to do more... And I don't know what that more is. I think mm-hmm. that it's right, this sort of nebulous idea of what is the thing we can capture that allows us to say this school is having a positive influence yeah. on a on a student 15 to 18 years in in yeah. four years, right? Where are they at 25? That's very hard to capture to say yeah. this is a school that's been producing successful adults. All right. Can I ask you an existential question? Yeah. <laughs> what, does any of this matter? I mean, we think it matters. We want to believe that it matters, that that the design, the details matter because they are incentivizing different kinds of reactions, right? And that there was some research from, say, the NCLB years that indicated that schools do respond to these signals. But do we think that's still the case or is everybody just ignoring this stuff? I mean, does is except for us wonks. I saw a statistic the other day that said something like, like only 50% of parents knew that school report cards existed. Yeah. So, or they could find them. Yeah. Right. So, and I think you all had a report out two years ago about yeah. these things are great, but if I have to take 27 clicks on an internet yeah. page to be able to find them, is it really a useful yeah. piece of information? But do educators care? I mean, do they care that they're getting a B instead of an A or a D instead I of I think a the B schools and... feel the pressure. Do they? I think schools feel pressure to, to perform well. I think if you ask them, are these are the metrics that matter? I think that's maybe a separate conversation, right? They mm-hmm. care because they face political pressures or big blue ribbon banners we on their school. Think but so do we know that? And having conversations, you'll tell you'll hear schools okay. that I work with, and right. this is across the U.S. Say right, like we're facing these accountability pressures. We've got right. to make sure that we're still doing well on X, Y, and Z. Um, you'll also hear when you try to bring in new initiatives. Well, we can't use the term business as usual for a for a school because these schools are in turnaround or these schools mm-hmm. are in um, improvement phase and politically that doesn't sit well. So I mm-hmm. think there's a, I, I do think on the ground people are responding to this information. Okay. I also think if you go back to the NCLB era, what gets measured sometimes gets used, right? So if, if nothing else, we did finally see that there were sort of performance gaps mm-hmm. and could put our thumb on where those performance gaps were. I think you might start to see more information more of this in graduation rates or access to uh, post-secondary schooling while still enrolled in high school, right? We might start to be able to identify some of these things. Yeah. I'm not convinced it, like you said, it's not going to be completely correlated with demographics or school location, right? I think yeah. about rural schools being able to offer yeah. any sort of secondary career, vocational, technical education parallel to a high school degree yeah. and well, I think it there. does matter. Let me just say. Yeah. All right. <laughs> all right. No, no, no. That's all I want that's to say. I think it does matter. I can't tell you exactly how yeah. or when or why, but, you know, there are so many uh, necessary but not sufficient conditions yeah. for something like accountability to work. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it, it may make no difference whatsoever until someday a state, uh, you know, creates an awesome website that lets parents mm-hmm. actually see the information and then suddenly the measures matter a whole lot. So, well, may- maybe I'm not so sure the parents are the, 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 key audience here, but, but I mean, they should do that anyways, but right. Here's the thing. We should be able to test this empirically, right? Going forward. We, those, there's going to be variation across the country. And we say, okay, these States that really focus on growth, for example, Shh, don't give away our ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do they see more growth, you know, and or not, you know, or is it, Again, these these levers or these uh, uh, policies just not strong enough to show up in the data. Plus, I don't know how the heck you studied this because, unfortunately, states have never allowed us to randomly assign policies to them. Go figure. <sighs> so annoying. But if you're interested, states, let us know because we've got ideas.
that we could uh, study ideas we could use that for. All right. Well, thank you. Great conversation, Stephanie. Again, Stephanie Rabel, Associate Policy Researcher at RAND. Hope you'll come back sometime soon. Happy to do it. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Finally, after a long hiatus, you're back. Great to have you here. Uh, Thank you very much. Adam did great filling in. Really appreciate it. That was like a three-week spent. He did. He did. But man, it is hard to do this in a minute. Uh, Right? See? I'm telling you. We haven't actually done it in a minute in like 10 years. No, never have done it. Remember, there there was time. The very beginning, beginning. I think we had a clock. You did. And I was always going 90 seconds. And that was back when Rick was, you know, co-hosting and both you guys would get very aggravated. But anyway, I'm doing better, but I don't think we're ever going to get exactly 60 seconds. It's just crazy Well, I think we we got an appreciation from Adam just how hard it is (laughs) to keep it to a minute. So we appreciate you, uh, you right. coming you within like five minutes. And keep me on my toes since I've had a break. Um, well, it depends anyway. what you got for us. <laughs> we have a new study by Tom D and colleagues examines the effects of NCLB waivers in Kentucky. So I don't know if you guys have seen these studies that have been on the waivers slowly kind of dribbling out. Mm-hmm. Um, there've been a few. There's one in Rhode Island, mm-hmm. one in Louisiana. Both of them found pretty negative effects on student performance. Uh, but this one in Kentucky, a little more positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the study examines outcomes only for what the waiver guidance called focus schools, which are those schools that had the lowest performance for designated subgroups or the largest performance gaps between subgroups. Mm -hmm. Kentucky submitted its waiver application in November 2011. The study looks at outcomes in almost a thousand elementary and middle schools for the 2013-14 school year, which is the first full year in which the focus schools implemented their chosen reforms. Now, can I just real quickly, yes, I won't count this course. against you. It's okay. All right. When I think about waivers, I think about, yes. okay, they are allowed to have a different accountability system yes. than under NCLB growth and stuff like this. This sounds to me a little bit more like school improvement grants. I mean, is that uh, also? It is also a school. Yep. Okay. I would say that's so, true. So it's a new accountability system, but then also extra money focused on these schools. That's right. Okay. And they recall that they get substantial leeway from the feds to choose, quote unquote, research-based intervention. Yeah. So they have a lot of leeway. Lots yeah. of leeway. Analysts use a regression discontinuity design where the threshold for focused school status is specific to each school. Since schools scoring in the bottom 10% of elementary and middle schools are eligible for focused school classification. Mm-hmm. Note that Kentucky also chose to use a super subgroup measure that combines students from traditionally low performing groups. So these are the kids on free and reduced lunch, students with disabilities, black, Hispanic, American Indian, and students with limited English proficient skills. Mm-hmm all in the same subgroup, okay? Analysts were looking at the average percent proficient or above for these, they call them gap group students, across five subject areas. And schools were put into the treatment and control group based on where they fell right above or below that arbitrary bottom Mm -hmm. 10% threshold, Mm -hmm. okay? The key finding is that the Kentucky reforms led to substantial improvement, Mm -hmm. raising math proficiency rates by 17%, Mm -hmm. which is about a 5 percentage point increase. Yeah, okay. And reading proficiency rates by 9%, that's about a two or three percentage points for the gap group students. Mm -hmm. Moreover, they also find positive results, though not always statistically significant, for groups 
outside of the gap group, which suggests potential spillover effects. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, because of course I'm like thinking, okay, how long was this, right? Um, they could only, they couldn't look beyond 13, 14 school year mm-hmm. because like so many things, um, the state, the, the rubric that the state used to evaluate the focus schools was then later applied to all Title I schools too. Uh-huh. So the intervention got muddied. All right. Uh, and then they've got this great section where they hypothesize, like, what's different in Kentucky and to some of these other waiver, you know, evaluations we're seeing in other states. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a great discussion. Um, the one thing they say is that first it could have been that they that they chose that super subgroup mm-hmm. methodology and sort of how they group kids. And that could have catalyzed whole school reform mm-hmm. as opposed to targeting a more narrow reform that might have been, you know, targeted to particular kids. Second, recall Kentucky was a early adopter of Common Core. You know that? Mm-hmm. Remember that? And they also adopted these race to the top. You know, they were one of the first states that got the race to the top funds. Mm-hmm. And so there was this idea that they'd already built internal capacity in these other mm-hmm. sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe they can carry out, they were more equipped to carry out um, this particular Thing, set of things. And then third, they actually looked at state survey data of teachers um, in these focus schools, and they basically found a bunch of data that said that the focus school teachers rated the quality of their PD higher mm-hmm. and said consistently that it wasn't about the quantity of PD, but the quality of PD they were mm-hmm. receiving. Yeah. So there you have it. That I was long. How many minutes? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a figurative <laughs> it was minute. Just all it's, really- it, no, it's interesting. And of course, it is a good question. Why? It is true that back in the, I remember in the early days of Common Core, uh, Kentucky was one of those places that people talked about that was mm-hmm. really trying uh, to get good PD to the teachers mm-hmm. uh, around what the new standards expected. So yeah, maybe that maybe could help. To that. I, I just don't know within these particular schools, you know, how much to make of that. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I think in general, isn't it one of those states that where the, the State Department of Education just has more capacity, I think, than elsewhere? And they've been doing That's it for a long impression. time. Yeah. The leadership. Well, you know, and they've had these reforms forever where there's also decentralization, right? right. That there's a local school committee for each school that hires right. the principal. So I'm kind of curious how that all plays out. Yeah. And uh, that's one thing they brought up. Actually, did they? Like, yeah, that, that, yeah, that was a, maybe an important lever for yeah for all that they were seeing. Yeah, it was like a committee. It was like a parent and a um a, a school person and the next door. Like it had like a just a body of different mm-hmm. mix of people that were um supposed to be overseeing whether that school yep. improvement plan was actually being enacted. Mm-hmm. The, school, um, the schools that yeah. needed improvement, they were identified based on growth. Or proficiency. 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 Yeah. Mm, okay, that's yeah. my other theory. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, never mind. <laughs> All right, well, hey, good good for Kentucky. And look, yeah. this is important. I have, you know, as people know, I've, I've long been skeptical that we really know what to do with these chronically low-performing mm-hmm. schools. And that would be just better just to replace them with mm-hmm. schools that we know work, like high-quality charter schools. <laughs> Maybe it's just that you don't know what that, to do, Mike. Well, that's <laughs> Maybe true. Maybe Kentucky Number knows. one, that is true. And number two... <laughs> That doesn't really work uh, in lots of places, like, uh, you know, in a rural community in Kentucky. As John White in Louisiana points out, he's not going to be able to replace his low-performing rural or small-town schools. He's got to fix them. And guess what? If you focus on teaching and learning Mm -hmm. curriculum, the basics, uh, you can actually make some progress. I think so. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Does end with our figurative minute. (laughs) Okay. And that is all the time we got. All right. Good job here. Who are they again? Sade? Is that how you think he said that name? Uh, I don't know. I only... You know, I knew Tom D, but I did yeah. not know the co-author, Sunday unfortunately. And Tom D. All right. Thanks so much. Check it out. Until next week, that is all the time that we've got. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.